You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. A record 655 COVID cases across the state prompted Governor David Ige to mandate COVID vaccines for state and county workers. Here's some of what he had to say. A few months ago, we were proceeding and progressing very well in our fight against COVID-19. Vaccination rates were very high here in Hawaii and going strong. The number of COVID-19 cases were shrinking as our entire community responded to the actions needed in order to slow COVID-19 here in Hawaii. Since then, much, much has changed. Today, the number of cases and hospitalizations are all trending up dramatically. The highly contagious Delta variant creates a big risk of infection, especially for members of our community who are not vaccinated. Based on the current conditions, I must take action to protect public health and avert unmanageable strains, strains on our health care all across the state. You know, the jump in cases due to the more contagious Delta variant has triggered a sense of urgency, and the new emergency proclamation requires workers to get the shots or submit to regular testing. At the beginning of this week, the Healthcare Association of Hawaii President and CEO Hilton Rathel talked to us about the plans to ask FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, for extra health care workers. Hospitals have put in requests now in excess of 500 extra staffers because of the surge in cases. Here's Rathel. We are actively working with them to obtain resources to support bringing personnel into the state. Our healthcare personnel are really stretched. We are looking at potentially bringing in a fairly large contingent from the mainland. It's not all confirmed, but we are hoping and anticipating that we're going to be able to bring in a significant number of staff across all of our islands to help buttress the staff who are here and have been working so hard. It's a mixture of ICU nurses, med surge nurses, emergency department nurses and respiratory therapists and maybe a couple of other professions as well, primarily, primarily nurses with different skill levels. Right now, Hawaii County has the highest positivity rate in the state, 8.3% as of yesterday. A spokesperson for the Hilo Medical Center on the east side of the island says that their facility is full of their 128 beds. Only four are left available. The west side of the island is also phasing a surge in cases. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote reached out to Judy Donovan. She's the director of marketing and strategic planning at Kona Community Hospital. She says uh, its facility is currently treating 10 patients for COVID-19, five of them whom are in the ICU. Donovan says Kona Hospital is critically low on staff, but it expects relief from the state within eight to 10 days. At Kona Community Hospital, the current surge is impacting our services pretty greatly. Unlike the first time around with uh, the first surge last year, we are seeing a lot of inpatients. We have an inpatient right now, for instance, 10 people, five are in the ICU, five are in a med surge. But for every inpatient, we're seeing several outpatients who are also testing positive. Fortunately, those people um, who don't admit are able to go home and quarantine there to get better. We did set up our COVID unit on our med surge unit again. We had pulled it down because the numbers, it looked like things were going to be leveling off. So over the weekend, we did reestablish that unit so that we could put people with COVID kind of in the same general area. It's an easier and more efficient way to treat that level of acuity. I understand you also set up, reset up your triage center. This morning, as a matter of fact, they are setting up our triage tent. It is literally a mash tent that was provided to us by the state. It's a two-room tent. It can hold up to 30 patients. We used it for our COVID vaccine clinic over the prior six months and had also pulled that down. But now we're reestablishing it over by the emergency department in the event that the influx worsens and we have to have overflow space. And are you anticipating that it will worsen? We are, unfortunately. We believe that the majority of the influx will happen pretty badly over the next 7 to 10 days. And then anecdotally, we're hearing that the Delta variant peak can take up to 8 weeks.
Our community was a little caught by surprise. We have spent over a year and a half being prepared, and and our staff has done an excellent job. They have really stepped up to the plate. But it is almost like the last year and a half was practice for where we are right now. They are fully prepared support-wise to manage this. But having said that, they are pretty exhausted, and they are also, like anybody in the community, since they're so close to this, virus, they're very worried for their families, their loved ones, and themselves as well. So they've got worry, but they also have a job to do. I think maybe as a community, we let our guards down a little bit because we had done such an excellent job of staying ahead of the first part of the the coronavirus last year. You have 94 beds in your facility. How many of those are currently occupied? Right now, we have 67 beds occupied. Behavioral health, for instance, is 11 beds, so you wouldn't just put anybody in behavioral health. We will overflow patients into our OB unit if we need to, but that would be somebody with a much lower acuity or maybe somebody getting over a a broken leg or something like that who can't discharge. So we can overflow into OB, but we cannot overflow into behavioral health. So that limits us as well. I spoke with a spokesperson from Hilo Medical Center yesterday, and one of the things that they clarified for me, which I didn't understand, was that COVID patients on average spend much longer in a facility than patients who are not being treated for COVID. Their average for a non-COVID case is four days, but for a COVID patient, it is four weeks. Would you say that that's a phenomenon that occurs at Corona Community Hospital as well? It does. As of uh, the beginning of last week, so not this week, but the beginning of last week, our average length of stay was eight days. But having said that, we had a very low census of COVID patients up until the prior two weeks. The most we ever had at one time was six people. So we've had people stay here as many as eight weeks, and we've had people go home within two days. So I believe that the last two weeks, if I were to re-average it, that number of eight days would, would spike up. And one of the other things that the spokesperson over at Gila Medical Center said was that unlike this time last year, in the first wave of COVID-19 in Hawaii County, far fewer patients were in the hospital for any type of treatment because they were limiting the amount of people you were seeing. But now, because we are in a different phase of reopening, there's many more people who are in the hospital just in general. That is absolutely true. We did see when tourism kicked back in, uh, what, maybe four weeks ago, our numbers started going up right away. Traumas, motor vehicle accidents, moped accidents, falls. So we had an increase of tourists. And also, it seems like people in general were getting back out because they'd been inside for a year and a half. So, yes, our our census was already up. And then add to it this new Delta virus, which is so much more virulent than the last one. We're seeing those numbers go way up for the first time for us. Is there anything else that you want to take a moment to clarify for our listeners about what you are seeing on the ground right now? Yes, I would. What we're seeing on the ground is kind of twofold. If someone has been vaccinated and and the virus does break through, they are not admitting to a hospital. Since we started taking note of this statistic on April 1st, we have only had one person who was vaccinated actually require hospitalization. So we're seeing the huge majority of our inpatients who are acute enough to require hospitalization did not have a vaccine. So that's one thing we've seen. The other is that this current wave, the Delta virus, is, again, it's just so much stronger. Just in the last four days, we have had, out of 80 people in our emergency department over a four-day period, 21 of them tested positive for the coronavirus. Six of them had to admit and 10 were able to go home and quarantine and isolate at home. So we're seeing a, a very large number of people who are getting the virus, which means they're also spreading the virus, who don't actually require hospitalization. So in our opinion, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg here for what's going to happen over the next 7 to 10 days. You know, we have admitted children 
this isn't an old person or a person with comorbidity or an obese person problem anymore. This is an everybody problem. I'm so worried because children can't have this vaccine yet, and, and whole families are being exposed at this point. I know a lot of younger people are still a little cavalier, and they think, oh, you know, I'm not older, and I don't have any comorbidities, and I'm not obese, so I'm cool. That's not true. Again, in conversation yesterday with Gila Medical Center, they said last year this time when they were seeing patients for COVID-19, those patients were most commonly the ones who needed hospitalizations in their 60s, 70s, 80s. Mm-hmm. This time, this year, the average age is 48. I think ours is about 44. We did have two cases recently that just totally rattled me because they were very, very young children. And I know that parents out there would not put their children at risk, but this is putting everybody's children at risk. That was the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote. She was talking to Kona Community Hospital's Judy Donovan. She says that the state is supplying an additional eight ventilators, but they are also in critical need of more respiratory therapists. Hilo Medical Center will enact new visitor policies this coming Monday. A patient may only have one visitor per day, and they must be vaccinated. There are exceptions for patients in end-of-life care, pediatrics, and OBGYN. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. With the Olympic Games in its final week of competition and Canada's Damian Warner winning the gold medal in the Olympic decathlon this week, we're reminded of an American decathlete who competed for the Stars and Stripes at the highest level. Born in Austin, Texas, Brian Clay grew up in Hawaii in the 1990s. He participated in track and field in high school. He went on to Azusa Pacific University, just outside of Los Angeles, where he continued his training to become a world-class decathlete. He first qualified for the Olympics in Athens, Greece in 2004, where he won a silver medal. Four years later in Beijing, he dominated the field, taking home Olympic gold. But before his stellar showing on the global stage, Clay was a standout high school athlete. For today's backyard quiz, do you know where Hawaii, which Hawaii high school uh, Olympic gold medalist Brian Clay attended? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareethawaii.com. moratorium expires later today and there are fears that more people will end up on the streets. Today, Bears Noe Tanigawa joins us to talk about some of the emergency programs that are out there. Good morning. Oh, good morning. And I'm here really to tell you about the front line for people who are out there. This is a program that was set up by the Honolulu Police Department. It's their homeless 
Outreach and Navigation for Unsheltered Persons Initiative. What do you know? Honu. Yes. (laughs) I like that. Yeah, me too. And you know what? This is the first opportunity off the street for a lot of people. 24-7, low barriers. You can even bring a pet in if you want to. You can get in there transportation provided and um, the whole idea was to provide mobile services for people that means hygiene a shower connection to maybe your ID maybe getting food stamps maybe getting into housing it's all just a start and Honu had some pop-ups like Pahu old stadium they were really successful but on a longer term basin basis they opened up the first provisional outdoor screening and triage facility or post this sort of a longer term option there at Ke'ehi Lagoon last December boy they've gone through a lot of changes there there are a lot they you know originally they were just so hot sweltering these tents mm, out in yes. open grass it was just but they've really gone through an improvement what they've done is created a whole different situation at the second post in Whitmore they got these military grade neoprene shelters that just pop up in four minutes 400 square feet of living space and um, now they've done this uh, this type of housing in both locations Sergeant Joseph O'Neill is the acting lieutenant of HBD community outreach he's been there since it started in 2018 and he introduced us to this um, you know the post that they have now in Whitmore Village. There are 21 residents there, 35 at Ke'ehi Lagoon right now. We're seeing more and more people, which is unfortunate. We've had infants, we've had children, we've had people come through, and it's really sad that I think as a society there's nowhere for them to go. So that's kind of sad. But we try to serve the community we're in. So like just in like Waipahu, the majority of people that have come through were from Waipahu. Same with stadium. Same with here is of the, I say it's close to 50 that have come through so far, 50 or more have been from the area of Wahiwa and North Shore. I'll give Councilmember Heidi Sumiyoshi um, a lot of credit that she really wanted the whole new. She pushed, she worked with us, and we worked with the Agribusiness Development Corporation and the state. An evaluator stayed in our site last week and she did not even know of any program that was run by a police department nationwide like Honu, which is mobile in the, in the design that it's in. I don't think there's a single program that has touched almost 50% of the known unsheltered in one year. In some places, police and our social service spreaders are siloed. It's different worlds, right? Mm. We've done it differently in Hawaii where we work together and our results speak for themselves because this program is unmatched nationally. Yeah, I've sat in on these statewide webinars. It's kind of amazing. And what what this is, is seen as a successful example of state-city agency partnership here. But um, we don't even have to take their word for it. I talked to Tammy a couple weeks ago at Ala Moana Park. We were at a gathering of, of current and, and formerly homeless. She spent four months at the post there in Ke'ehi. She said it was hellishly hot. But she did get her Social Security card. And she and her boyfriend, Reno, just moved into Hale Maliola Navigation Center on Sand Island. They live now in shelters made out of containers that are divided into two or three living units. The idea then is to move from there into permanent housing. Now, Tammy said she had no idea what being homeless was really like at all. It's not just missing a roof. Uh, This view from the street is real, and people who land there are are really in shock. They can't afford the rent. The rent is too high. And the income, you you don't have enough income to pay for even a roof. That's why they are there, and I really feel for them because it is scary. Truthfully, if I was to come from where I came from and to just come out here to be homeless, I don't think I would last, you know. I really don't think so. I, I could probably get killed out there. Everybody has to fend for themselves. Is you it dangerous? Don't, yes, if you don't know somebody, make sure that you're always around people because people do. People steal from people, even though they're having a hard time. People that's already homeless stealing from homeless people. I don't understand that. They suffer random violence out there, too, and it's really scary. She points that out. Um, reports of increasing homeless on the street are coming in, according to the city. I talked with um, Housing Director Anton Krucki recently. He said that um, w- the city is continuing with what they call now cleanups in response to complaints which are increasing. And, you know, look what we're looking at, right? Catherine, the median home sale price in on Oahu is a million dollars yes, right now. Yes, I know. 
I know. I remember uh, economist Bru- uh, Paul Brubaker was warning of this, and uh, the day has come. We're, we're there. A location, so you just put it out. It's not quite on their website, but I brought you the press release. We've hit a million dollars for the median home sale price, and the, the pace they're selling at, the r- number of homes that are selling above asking are way up. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're looking at. Yeah, and, you know, the moratorium uh, expires today, and we keep our fingers crossed that those people apply for assistance and stay in those homes. Well, the state hopes that landlords will accept the rent vouchers and rental assistance that's available. It is available out there. Federal, state, and county-level assistance for landlords to keep people in their homes is uh, out there now. All right. Thank you so much, Noe. That was HPR reporter Noe Tanigawa. To read her stories, go to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to be part of Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring pop-up installations across the museum. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. You're an HPR listener, which means you're smart and you care about the future of this station. We want to know your thoughts. How can we serve you better? What would you like to see more of? We're currently conducting our audience survey. We'd love your input. Check your email inbox for the invitation or head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org survey. It means a lot to us and as always, mahalo for your support. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration on Oahu, Maui, Hawaii Island, and Kauai. Celebrating 60 years, featuring Daikin air conditioners. Learn more about Daikin at CostcoHawaii.com. Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about the Honolulu Fire Department and the difficulty it's having getting a new chief. Editor Chad Blair on the line with us. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Aloha Friday, Kathy. Yes, isn't that nice to say? <laughs> I'm looking forward to the weekend. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Gosh, you know, the, the, but your story about the fire department, it is distressing. Yeah, this is something that um, has not been on the radar of, of many. I know that Hawaii News Now, our media partner, has reported a few things. I think there might have been an article in the Star Advertiser. But we've been focused so much on the Honolulu Police Commission, right, trying to find a new chief to replace Susan Ballard, uh, trying to get uh, another member on the police commission. And Botticelli is close to being uh, appointed by the mayor to that commission. Uh, but nobody talks much about the Honolulu Fire Commission. Well, it turns out they, too, are looking for a new fire chief. Uh, Manuel Nevis retired back in February, so it's been five, six months now with a vacancy. And uh, part of this is um, the fact that Fire Commission, which does the hiring, it, too, is missing one of its members. There are only six members currently on the seven-member board. And guess what? They are deadlocked, 3-3, on who the new police, rather, fire chief should be. Well, you know, I recall a, a story earlier about how the uh, the union, the firefighters mm. union, stepped in and made a recommendation, uh, which was a little unusual, you know, before the commission had a chance to really kind of um, go through these applications. Yeah, that's right. And they're, and they're backing uh, Kalani Howe. Howe is the acting deputy chief. That's who Bobby Lee, the president of the Firefighters Association, says is the right guy uh, for the job. They don't like uh, Lionel Camera Jr. Camera is the acting chief. So you have the acting fire chief running against the acting deputy fire chief. Uh, Bobby Lee of the Firefighters Association says that Camera 
in his view, is too closely associated with, with the, the reign of, of Manuel Neves, who was chief for eight years, had been in the firefighting business for over four decades. Uh, Camera, I, I did speak or hear from both candidates, says you know he thinks he's going to bring the right uh, discipline to the fire commission and has some ideas for which direction it should go. Uh, Kalani Howe has his own reasons for running as well. But it's so interesting that there's a standoff and, and there is a public meeting next Friday, Friday the 13th, as it turns out, of the Honolulu Fire Commission. They've invited both candidates to come uh, and speak. Uh, but I did talk to Charlotte Dakota. She's the chair of the fire commission. And she says, you know, unless one of the commissioners changes their mind, they're going to continue to be deadlocked 3-3. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I, you know, I remember um, uh, Lionel's dad was also a firefighter mm. and a chief uh, and, and those days. But I don't recall like this kind of a split, uh, you know, uh, within the department, within the commission like this. Um, so kind of very unusual. You know, if, if there was a seventh commissioner, presumably that person would be the tiebreaker. Uh, Mayor Blangieri has, in fact, uh, nominated someone uh, for that position. It's Dave Matlin, right, the mm-hmm. UH athletic director. Uh, but that nomination is on hold by the city council. Uh, Heidi, Heidi Suneyoshi, who runs the Public Safety Committee, has, has deferred Matlin's nomination because she's concerned that you don't want to bring somebody in new when the interview process for the fire chief has been ongoing. It's been five or six months. They've had a number of meetings. There's interviews. It's a lengthy application process. So there's a concern on the part of Suneyoshi. You know, yes, we want to have seven members, a fully staffed fire commission, but you don't want somebody coming in who then would have to catch up and, you know, really get up to speed. And not only that, possibly be this very dramatic tiebreaker. That nomination of Dave Matlin uh, will be heard again on August 25th. And who knows whether we'll still have a fire uh, chief vacancy at that time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I recall with Nevis, you know, there was some concern uh, about uh, his uh, job performance before he Yeah. Uh, concerns about overtime uh, spending, uh, a few other things. Others have credited him with bringing new blood into the into the um, fire fire department, HFD also bringing in much needed equipment. So you're going to have your pros and your cons, but uh, he has his concerns. By the way, there is also concerns about the credentials, the accreditation, the um, the, the uh, experience of both candidates. Um, Charlotte Nakota, the fire commissioner, said that they would try and release their resumes and make that public so that everybody could see because these are public officials. Uh, we'll see whether that's going to happen or not. But transparency and accountability are things that both uh, Councilmember Suneyoshi and the fire commissioner in Dakota stress are very important in this search for a new fire chief. Yeah, well, we'll see, uh, you know, if they can uh, break this uh, stalemate. Uh, you know, <laughs> yes, <you know>. deadlock. <laughs> yes, who, who, who's going to do, who's going to, uh, you know, be the one. Uh, be interesting to watch. But thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was politics and opinion editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Coming Saturday, August 14th, it's a live stream Atherton Studio performance with Naukulele Ekolu, highlighting the versatility and range of the ukulele, everything from the traditional to the contemporary. It's a virtual concert, so you can join us from anywhere. Sign up at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Kaoki's Paradise and Dukes on Kauai.
Governor David Ige declared a special day to honor Carissa Moore. The Oahu native and professional surfer became the first woman to ever win a gold medal for surfing at its debut at the Tokyo Olympics. She shared her thoughts at a news conference officially marking Carissa Moore Day. I didn't know I was going to be up here speaking, and I don't have anything planned, but I'm going to speak from my heart. I am truly overwhelmed (laughs) with all the love (laughs) that I've been shown, not only the past week, but the weeks leading up to this, the months, the years. Um, I wouldn't be where I am today without everybody that has contributed time and effort and love. My ohana, my friends, my family, um, the community of people in Hawaii that have raised me this this wouldn't have been possible. And I just want to express my gratitude and how honored I feel to be a part of the Olympics, to represent the United States of America, but especially my home. My home is Hawaii. My heart is Hawaii. And um, one of my biggest inspirations is Duke Kanemoku. And I had the privilege of watching a beautiful documentary of him and his life before I left for the games. And just learning about how he was an Olympic champion, but more so a champion human and a true ambassador of Aloha and how he loved unconditionally, how he shared us our sport of surfing with the world and how he treated people with kindness and took the time. I hope we all can live his way to be able to compete in surfing's debut in the Olympics, to be a native Hawaiian, to be a part of his story and to bring gold medal back home to the birthplace of surfing. It is so I feel so honored. That was Carissa Moore, and she's part of a new exhibit focusing on the past and present of surfing, now on display in the heart of Waikiki. Eduardo Bolioli's Golden Dream Surfboard Exhibit features more Duke Kahanumoku and the three other Team USA surfing members painted on vibrantly colored surfboards. Moore's on red, John John Florence is on yellow, Kalohi Andino is on green, and Carolyn Marks on blue, and Uncle Duke is on black. The conversation's Matt Fairfax was there for the opening of the exhibit, and he spoke with those involved in the festivities. With the blue waters of Waikiki Beach serving as a backdrop, it couldn't be a better day to step outside and soak up some sun. But on this scorching summer morning, the largest crowd in Waikiki is actually indoors. We're gathered at the Outrigger Waikiki Beach Resort, just a few feet from where Hawaii icon and legendary Olympian Duke Kahanamoku used to surf the world-famous waves. Outrigger Hospitality Group's president and CEO Jeff Wagner greets the crowd. We're honored to be a host of an art exhibit that celebrates the founder of modern surfing in concert with the sport's long-awaited debut in the Olympic Games. Uruguay-born artist Eduardo Bolioli was not able to travel to Tokyo for the Olympics, but he says there's no better location he could have opened his surfboard exhibit. I thought that it was a shame that having the first time that the Olympics are going to be in they're going to have surfing in the Olympics that we wouldn't be able to to go there and we wouldn't be able to participate. So it's like, well, if we can't go to the Olympics, maybe we can bring the Olympics here to us because this is where it was born. This beach means everything to the entire world. Without Duke Kahanamoku, without everybody that came afterwards, without guys like Joey Cabell, I wouldn't even be here. Bolioli says his exhibit highlights Duke Kahanamoku as the initiator of the Olympic surfing dream. Duke is the main focus of the show. It's kind of like a pyramid. From him, everything starts going down or going up. Duke embodies surfing's legacy in Hawaii, but another surfer of native Hawaiian ancestry is making waves in the sport today. Carissa Moore recently became the first ever Olympic woman surfing gold medalist, not to mention her four world titles. Moore's surfing style, which exemplifies raw speed and power, resonates with Bolioli. She was the first one I was able to to sketch. She was kind of like the one I really wanted to focus on, not just because of her world titles, but I wanted to put her on the red boy because I thought that that's her, you know, that's uh, when she surfs, she's red. She's like uh, everything, she has pizzazz. 
Following Bolioli's introduction to the crowd, one of Duke's relatives, Ralph Aona, performs a blessing on the exhibit. May they always carry that spirit of aloha, and that aloha will always be with them, and that in that they will bring courage and they will bring great strength to the art and the sport of surfing. So bless them and everyone there, and may we as a people continue to love and care for one another. May we malama each other, and may we always be in connection with one another, especially with our land and with our ocean, and with all that you have blessed us with. In the name of your uh, loving one that we always uphold. Amen. Ralph Aona says Duke would be proud of the evolution of surfing and its arrival on the Olympic stage. Well, Uncle Duke played a big part because I think part of it was his willingness and desire to help others to, to also to learn the sport or to develop their skills, whether it's swimming or whether it's surfing. He was, he was the one that was, was there to, to engage and help people. So today, he would be so um, thankful and grateful that you know, what he did to help others, they are doing the same. And surfing is getting better. Um, surfboards are, are lighter and much thinner. And, and so there's a lot of changes. In it, and I think he would welcome all those changes and would appreciate all, all that's been done and continues to be done. Bolioli says his ultimate goal is to paint surfboards that capture the spirit of surfers like Duke Kahanamoku and Carissa Moore. It really depends to me on the personality of the surfer. And also, as I tell everybody, okay, clear boards are great. You know, they're, you can get them really fast. It's done. and. Pro surfers are always on the run, you know, going one country to another. But when you have something that contrasts with the water, it's so much better for the photo. So to have like a photo with a white surfboard, it depends on the move you're making if the photo is going to look great or not. But if you have like a board that has warm colors to it, that contrasts with the aquas, with cooler colors of the ocean and the sky. Your movie doesn't have to be that great because the photo is already, it's, the, the colors are there. It's easy for a photographer to make a really good composition and get that photo into the magazines or now on the net, on the internet. That was our summer intern, Matt Fairfax, talking to artist Eduardo Bolioli and Duke Hanamoku relative Ralph Aona. Bolioli's surfboard exhibit is now open at the Outrigger Waikiki Beach Resort until the end of the year. Check it out. today's Backyard Quiz, we're shining the spotlight on Olympic champion Brian Clay. Born in Texas, the Clay family relocated to Hawaii, where young Brian was a standout athlete in high school in the 1990s. After graduating high school in 1998, he went on to compete in track and field at Azusa Pacific University in California. Clay is a two-time Olympian, winning the silver medal in the decathlon in the 2004 Games in Athens and the gold in the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. But that isn't the only global stage that he shined on. Clay also won at the 2005 World Championships and at the 2008 and 2010 World Athletic uh, Indoor Championships. In recognition of his accomplishments, Clay was inducted into the Azusa Pacific's Track and Field Hall of Fame in 2013. But before Clay was winning international track championships, he got his start in the sport on the windward side of Oahu. If you're a track fan or if you just keep track of Hawaii's champions, you probably know that Brian Clay attended James B. Castle High School in Kaneohe. We got tons of calls, but sports fan Jesse of Kaneohe is today's winner. Congrats. That's today's quiz, and if you've got one you'd like to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a distance executive MBA in travel industry management. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. This week on Science Friday, the gene editing technique CRISPR has stopped a disease in its tracks. Scientists hail it as a major milestone. CRISPR? is the equivalent of flying to the stars if we were astronomers. We're no longer now limited to cataloging the stars slash genes. We can fly to them, we can touch them, and we can change them. What's next for CRISPR? All on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Open it up to hike or tear it down. Those are the options as the Honolulu City Council weighs the future of the haiku stairs. But we got curious about the story behind the stairs, specifically the architect charged with designing them. His name was Daniel Karras. He was from Kaimuki. He lived on 8th Avenue with his grandparents. We learned he was a 1940 graduate of St. Louis School and was said to be in the very first class of first graders there. He got a job at the Pearl Harbor Shipyard in an apprentice draftsman program. He worked his way up and became an architect. His daughters recalled how he would carpool with his co-workers every day. One of his projects as a civilian architect for the Navy was designing the stairs for the Coast Guard Omega Station. The family eventually moved from Kaimuki to Kailua, and when uh, Daniel um, uh, Kairos finally retired from Pearl Harbor after 36 years, he moved to Maui, where he died at the age of 93. We talked to his son, Michael, who now lives in Maine. For his father, the construction of the stairs was a mission accomplished. I remember sitting with him at the dining room table one day. This was in Haiku, Maui. And we started talking about it, and he explained that he was, I don't want to say in charge, but he was designated the designer for the stairway to the radio station. And I remember him talking about how intrigued he was and that he had trouble sleeping at night because he was so, um, I'm trying to find the right word for it. He was, it was so exhilarating for him to go up there and, and take in that view and be a part of such a big project that, you know how you feel when you, you have all this inside energy and it's just exhilarating and it's, you can't take your mind off what you're thinking. And that's how the conversation got started. And then he was telling me about how all the parts had to be galvanized. And he just lit up when he started talking about it, so I know it meant a lot to him. And it wasn't long after that I started researching into how to get a hold of either an original or some of his drawings that he did. So it started with just a conversation in his house and seeing him light up about it. And so talk about how you went about doing the research to get those drawings. Well, it started out, I contacted his section at Pearl Harbor where he worked, and they explained to me that they don't keep those types of drawings, but that I could try a certain archive in Washington. And if I remember right, this was almost 20 years ago, they may have given me a number or a name of an organization which I contacted at the time. and. That led me to the right institution that that actually housed the set of drawings that made up Haiku Stairs. So you corresponded with them for a while and then were able to get the drawings blown up? Yes, and they also sent me um, a CD. At the time, I was able to put it into the computer and look at it. It was comprised of black and white photos of the construction going on and all the different aspects of it. But yes, I was in communication with them for quite a while. I think it took a couple of months to finally get the right people that were able to to locate what I was looking for. It took a little while. It wasn't just something that happened overnight. And so you had this in your mind, you wanted to get a copy of that for him? Oh, yeah, yeah. There was nothing in the house that he had that referred to that big project. And I know it consumed a lot of his time. 
when he worked on it because he often worked at home too and i think that was part of that project he had a drawing table set up in their bedroom against the wall and he was in there a lot working on that he's very meticulous and he has a lot of stamina and concentration and focus when he's really into his work you know of course to his benefit but he did spend a lot of time on that project well i was talking to i think your youngest sister and she said she didn't know growing up that her dad was the guy behind the stairs. I mean, growing up in Kailua, yeah. right? Uh, right, right. He never talked about it. He never really talked about it. It wasn't until I was much older, I was already into my career, and I realized that he was a main factor in that project. And at some point, I either got contacted by John Flanagan or one of those guys that represents the Friends of the Haiku Stairs, and they were, I guess, trying to reach my dad to see if he could come over for, like, um, not so much a tour, but to meet them and discuss how everything was put together and maybe go up to the site. But I certainly remember him. And then, of course, at my dad's funeral, I met John Flanagan and one other individual that was active in the history of that, of that project. Yeah, I think it was Vern Ansdell that was there at that service as well. I think so. That rings a bell, yeah. So you managed to get a copy of the drawings, mm-hmm. and I understand mm-hmm. you presented it to your dad on one of his birthdays as a surprise. Yeah, it was his, it was his 80th birthday, so that was right around 2002. And it's about 18-inch by 24-inch copy of the drawing. And it's quite detailed. On the bottom legend, it says there were four. This particular drawing, which was number 709278, was sheet four of four. So there were other drawings, but for some reason, either this was the only one they could come up with or this was the one that made the most sense to me, so I selected it. I I just can't remember the exact details of why I picked this one, but... It's a nice drawing, and it depicts quite a bit. It depicts three distinct sections of the ladder ladder section. There's a type A ladder section, and that is, you know how the terrain there is. There's parts that are somewhat level, and then it, it it's steep, and then levels off again, and it's steep. Anyway, that particular drawing for type A depicts level ground to 30 degrees of inclination, which is quite steep. The drawing that depicts type B is 30 degree inclination to 60 degrees. And then there's a section C, which is 60 degrees and over as far as inclination. That's that's really steep. And in the drawing, there's fastening details, and there's uh, a series of step plates that are attached, little drawings of step plates attached horizontally to the stringers that make up the rails and the ladder. And then there's alternate anchors. This thing is so detailed. I mean, the intricate work that went into to making this. What did he think when you presented him with these drawings? He had a real surprised look on his face. It almost seemed like it was some of a little bit of a shock is it to say, where did you get this? And I explained to him, you know, that it was a gift because of his exuberance over our discussion over the project. I was just really happy to have it, and he hung it in the hallway in his house in Haiku on Maui. And it was after his passing that I was able to get it so that it didn't just disappear. Or I I tend to hang on to old things like my great-grandparents' trunk from the Azores and and my dad's stamp collection. So anyway, this this was just another thing from him that was really meaningful to me, so I I was able to hang on to it. And I have it in my wall in my, I guess you call it a den downstairs. And so did your father express, uh, I don't know, his opinion about what to do with the stairs when this controversy was raging? Because it's only been going now for, what, more than three decades? Not really. I remember him basically saying that it was built for one intention, and that intention was fulfilled. And I know he said it was unfortunate that it would fall into disrepair because 
something of that nature, you have to maintain it. And it was being used for purposes other than what it was originally meant for. So he he expressed that, but not so much in disappointment. It's just that that was the reality of it. It it, it, it was his project that he worked on, and it suited. It, it was done for a purpose, for a reason, and it was met. And then after that, it's just a matter of just letting it go. And your dad is buried at the Kaneohe Veterans Cemetery just down yes. there. Yep. You know, so My little sister Anne lives right across the highway from where he's, where he's buried. Yeah, so, I mean, if he's looking up there at the stairway to heaven, uh, that's his baby. Yeah, and we, we talked about that the day of his service, that it was right there across the way and into the valley. And uh, he thought so highly of that valley, it, it just intrigued him. And I can see why he lost sleep over it. It wasn't out of stress or strain of, of the job. It was just so beautiful. It just really, really touched him. It, he just came alive with, with being up there. That was Michael Kyrus, son of Daniel Kyrus, designer of the Haiku Stairs. Kyrus was a civilian architect at Pearl Harbor who died recently at age 93. He is buried just below the Pali there at the state's Veterans Cemetery. So the next time you drive by the Haiku Stairs, think of him. Aloha and mahalo, Daniel Kyrus. <laughs> That's it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we hear about a $2.5 million grant to study diabetes. It was awarded to UH researcher Alika Maunakea. Like something you heard today? Listen back to our shows on the conversation page on the HPR website. Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiono, and Lillian Song. Our summer intern, Matt Fairfax. Back our theme was written for us by John DeMello and our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, or join us Monday, I should say, and pick up the conversation. 